Good morning and welcome to another episode of Teacher Workout. This is your host, Christy Dinger, and today I am at the Downingtown STEM Academy, a highly ranked international baccalaureate magnet school that focuses on science, technology, engineering, and math. I have the privilege to be working out with Mr. Mike Poblesny, who is a beloved biology and environmental science teacher here at STEM. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm good, Christy. How about you? I'm great. I am super excited to work out with you. It's, it's always a pleasure. So what are we going to be doing for our workout today while we're talking? All right, so today we're going to be focused on back and by lifting. Back and by lifting. Back and by. Okay? Yep. Back and bys. All right, what kind of equipment are we going to use for that? Uh, we're going to use dumbbells and just a jump rope for some active recovery. Okay, so I see you have there some 35-pound weights. Right, we're um, going to start with some curls into a press. Okay, so, so I, maybe 15s or 10s. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with the 12. Uh, before we get started on the education piece, we're going <laughs> to curls. All right, we're going to do some into curls a press. Into a press. All right. Awesome. And you're probably trying to count in your head, aren't you? I'm good. Okay. So today, right, you're going to share with us a little bit about your journey professionally and how we help our students to become lifelong learners. So I have not been a teacher this whole time. I actually came to teaching in a very unorthodox way. Um, I started out as a lawyer, and I was a lawyer for about seven years doing pharmaceutical litigation, and I really hated it, <laughs> pretty much from the moment that I started doing it, uh-huh. and I... What did you hate about it? Well, I mean, the adults, I didn't like that part, and I would say besides adults, the whole process of law can be something that's very, uh, so we're going to do some active recovery now. Okay. So the whole process... Yep. Cool. The whole process of law can be something that's very soul-sucking. I mean, like, my job was trying to figure out whether or not plaintiffs should be part of the litigation. Uh -huh. And in doing that, I mean, we were attaching a number on a wife, which isn't really something that I thought I would get into when I got into justice. Okay. All right. And I actually took a, uh, a law class this past summer. Um, it was on education law, and I never realized how gray the, the law is. I had no idea how subjective it can be. Absolutely. And Most of it's in how well you can argue and critically think. Right, and um, I guess with that being said, it, it made me kind of realize that the relationships that we build um, could, could really affect you know, whether or not you find yourself in a situation where um, you're going through a litigation process. I mean, it is a lot about relationships, less than teaching, though. Right. So when I was a lawyer towards the end, um, trying to look for my exit strategy, I was working with a program called Philly Reads, where they would bring inner city students from Philadelphia in, elementary students primarily, and you'd work one-on-one -on -one with them, lawyer and the student, on reading strategies. And it was every Thursday during my lunch, and it became something that I really started to love. And I look forward to that. And that's what made me realize that law was not my current passion. Hmm, so that's interesting. So I know you didn't want me to mention this, but you were the 2023 
Citadel Heart of Learning Award winner, and in large part due to your ability to build meaningful relationships with your students. So would you mind sharing with us just what is your secret? I mean, I, I don't really think it's a secret. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm kind of confused sometimes when people are like, oh, that's what you're known for. You're all about relationship I've building. I've heard that you learn all of the students' names on the first day. Is I, that true? I learn them before the first day. What? So, so how do you do that? I don't know, I've never given this secret out No, before. you have to. <laughs> uh, so, what it takes is a yearbook. Okay. Your rosters, and a lot of repetition. So you, that's how you do it. You right. grab the yearbook. So I think that everybody wants to feel like they're part of a community. Absolutely. And when you have a teacher who's the head of that community, you know, the teacher sets the tone for helping model for other students what a community looks like. Mm -hmm. And so, for me, you're going to be a better part of a community if you feel welcomed into it. So I feel that the most welcoming way, the best way I can welcome students into my community is by letting them know, I already see you and know you, at least part of you. The rest is up to you, but I can know your name, your face from day one. And it lets them know, like, hey, this guy sees me. I never knew that that's how you did it. Yeah, so so that uh, the first day I hold up my roster and I'm like, hey guys, I'm pretty good putting names to faces, you know, do you think I can guess your name? And there's a lot more to the art form than that because for me with the last name Podlesny, teachers could never pronounce my name. And I hate that. And we have so many students with first names that are difficult to pronounce. And so I feel like, you know, you need to address that. And so. I'll usually go to ninth grade teachers and find out how to say their names properly before the first day. So that when I say your name, I'm saying it the right way. Or I'm saying what your nickname is, or the name that you like to be called if it's your middle name or something. So that a kid kind of gets the idea, it's got to put a little bit of work into this. Yeah, absolutely. I think it sets the tone from day one. And then it becomes about, okay, I know your names, but do you know each other's names? You know, some of you have been in class with the, uh, the other students for an entire year and still don't know their name. So it becomes about, you know, our first thing is, let's learn everybody's name. So we'll go around the table, and like, you, everybody's name. You, everybody's name. You, oh, I'm not ready. Okay, I'll come to you tomorrow, or I'll come to you in two days. And we'll practice this every day until every student gets it. That's amazing. And I've definitely tried that activity as well um, with, you know, going around the room and naming each other's names with the yearbook idea. I've never thought of that. That's, That's clever. And now that we have Schoology, yeah. I mean, I could just use you could. pictures and But the yearbook's nice because I can cover up all the names and then just see how many people's faces I know. The other benefit is that I pick up a lot of extra students, and so I end up getting to know more than just my students. Okay. So I see other kids and, you know, then and when I... what activities they were in. And if I'm covering a class, oftentimes, you know, I'll know several of the students in that class and I can refer to them by name and they're like, wow, this guy doesn't even know me. What but he knows my name. What a great tip. That's an awesome tip. Why do you think that connecting with the students is, has been so important to you? You know, I think back to, I wish I could remember her name, but it was one, which is sad because it's one of the most influential TED Talks I've ever watched. Um, but she kind of stood up in front of the room and she was talking about the keys to, to teaching. And she was addressing it more towards 
elementary students. But I think what I found out as I've gone through education is that we all liked elementary school because it was fun, because we did silly little activities, and really that doesn't change as you grow. We could always view learning from the lens that elementary students view learning, then maybe we'd love it a little bit more. Absolutely. So I, I look for my inspiration from a lot of elementary teachers. Um, you know, I give out scratch and stiff stickers and you are special pencils and you know lollipops and I try to treat it like the last time they remember learning being fun. And so what she said was, she was talking to another colleague and the colleague said, um, well, I don't need to these kids to like me. You know, I'm just here to teach them. And the woman said to, to her colleague, when's the last time you learned from somebody that you didn't like? Yeah, that's a great response. And I feel like, no, I don't need my students to love me, but I need them to do something more than respect me. I need them to see that I love what I'm doing and I'm excited by what and I'm doing. And that you care about them. And that I care about which them. Which you clearly do. Right. Right. And so I feel like, you know, it's part of like meeting them halfway. The fact that you're 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 doing that for them, and when it comes to getting to that point, you are meeting them more than halfway, and they are willing to do so much in your class, even if they hate biology. Mike, the STEM Academy is so fortunate to have such a student-centered teacher like you here with us. So, could you share a little bit about your journey and how you ended up? here as a biology and, and an environmental science teacher. Sure, just give me a minute to figure out what I want to lift here. That's fine, <laughs> we'll cut this part out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so as I said, I was working in the Philly Reads, with the Philly Reads program and I realized that I really wanted to get into education. I actually thought I wanted to get into elementary education. And due to changing certifications in Pennsylvania, that wasn't an option. And so they told me I could do middle school or high school. And I was like, well, I'm not doing high school because I can't deal with high school students. So I went middle school, thinking I would do sixth, seventh grade. And you thought that would be easier. I thought, well, I thought it would be easier to connect with students. Okay. I didn't think I could connect with high school students. Hmm. I thought it was outside my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. So then, um, there's this book called, uh, oh my God, The Alchemist. Okay. By Paulo Coelho. I don't even know how to say it, but The Alchemist. It's one of my favorite books. And the premise of the book is that when you are on the right path for you, the world will open doors to make that path easier to get down or to make that path more clear for you. And so I felt that way with my education journey. So I the wanted... right path is a clear path. Well, not necessarily. I, that's why I kind of hesitated when I said that. Okay. It, it's really that, you know, the opportunity, the doors will open. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy to get through them. Okay. But that the world, it, the, I think the premise of the book is sort of like the world conspires to help you along your path. Okay even if it's still a tough, arduous path, as mm -hmm. you saw from the book. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, I thought I would head to middle school in sixth grade, and then my master's program told me, we can't find you a student teaching placement for middle school, you have to do high school. And I was like, I never wanted to do high school. I said, fine, give me ninth grade. They gave me ninth grade and 10th grade, I hated ninth grade. Oh, ninth And realized that 10th grade was my wheelhouse. And 10th grade is so perfect for you. And that's exactly how I feel. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, so I started here. Um, but as I tell my students, you know, I try to use my journey in a role model sense so that they understand that uh, their journeys can't just take them from point A to point B. You know, that's... They have such a myopic view of the way the world works at this point. Some of it comes from parents, some of it comes from media. Wherever it comes from, they think that 
you love biology, you study biology in college, you become a doctor. You remain a doctor for your entire life, and that's the end of your journey. And as we move through the 21st century, we see that that's absolutely not the case. That a lot of the skills that you need are picked up in different professions or different careers. And so we see a lot more turning off of the path than I think we ever really have before, at least in American history. You know, I'm, and I shouldn't say American history, I should say recent American history, because I don't know what it was like in the 1700s and 1800s. But I know, you know, when you look at the baby boomers and my parents, it was very much, you start working for the insurance company, you retire working for the insurance company. And so there wasn't as much, and maybe it could be due to education levels or opportunities available, but a lot of the most interesting people I know have a path that curved. That's so, um, and, and your, I feel your like- Your curved path led, led you here. Right now, and this is not the end of my path. And right. I, I and tell students that. that sometimes, and they're like, oh my gosh, no, you'll never leave. I'm like, yes, I will. I'm, I'm, I can already feel in year 12 that my path You're is- feeling a pull. I'm feeling a pull somewhere else. And you know, I, I started thinking maybe it was um, teaching biology in college. And so I started a master's program in biology and as I'm in that program, I'm like, this doesn't feel right. Certain parts of it feel right, others don't. And I realized it was because I was veering away from education, which I really love. Mm -hmm. And so I've now started a PhD program. And as I'm starting to schedule my classes, again, I feel like there's a right path here. Okay. So are you, are you uh, right now, do you think you will go into higher ed eventually? I feel like this is a path I want to I want to go down. As far as studying, I start studying, mm -hmm. and I think I'm going to see where it leads me. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I teach in my class is about how some of the most famous scientists of all time, their discoveries have been an amalgamation of all the life experiences that they've picked up throughout the years. You look at someone like Charles Darwin, who actually started out heading into medicine, just like other members of his family who were world-renowned for what they had done in medicine. And as Darwin's going on that path, he realizes it's not the right one for him. He loves science, but not in that way. And so he begins by looking for the 55-pound weight. <laughs> I'll be right back. Okay. Okay, I'm back. Okay. Uh, you know, he begins by looking into other things that might interest him, and he follows his heart to theology um, and realizes that's not for him, ends up going on basically a two-year cruise, being a naturalist, mm -hmm. and all of the life things that he's brought with him are the things that the pieces that he needed to become the, you know, quote-unquote father of modern evolution. You know, right. he's studying birds on a ship, and the only way he can study them is because he took a taxidermy class as an elective when he was in college. Right. And so it's all these little things that you're like, I'm interested in this, I'm interested in that. You have and to follow And then somehow it all comes together. Not for everybody, Not but for everybody. you know, for a lot of people, saying something like that can demystify or destigmatize the idea of following your passion or finding your passion, which I feel like for a lot of my students that I see can be one of the most debilitating things you can tell them. Find your passion. Mm -hmm. We act like passion is something that is fixed, that never changes for your life, and that has to be something career-oriented. 
but your passion might be your family or fixing cars or woodworking or, or running. Mm -hmm. You might not be able to make a career out of it, but that might be the thing that gets your heart most excited. Mm -hmm. And so if our students are constantly trying to find a career that fulfills this, this idea of passion, it can lead them to never be happy. Are there any changes that you think that we should make to education that would facilitate students authentically experiencing uh, some of these uh, situations that you're that you're talking about? That, like, is there a way that we could make it so that we're um, providing them with with some of these skills that you know are expected to get picked up along the way after high school? Yes, more student option and course selections. Uh, it's tough because it's hard to say yes without also coupling it with a systematic change in the way that we do higher education. Mm -hmm. And you know, the the definitely we see it here at STEM. The acceptance rates of elite colleges have dropped so much that now not only does your grade need to be perfect, not only does your SAT score need to be perfect if you submit them, but also the courses you've crafted have to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes for our students, that means the highest levels of science and math. And time and time again, we see that come at the expense of taking an extra engineering class or taking an art class or a music class. Those are the things that fall by the wayside, but sometimes those are the things that can lead our students. A great example is uh, one of my former students just reached out to me yesterday. She was very interested in biology but also loved design mm -hmm. and art, mm -hmm. and it led her to developing prosthetics for animals. Wow. So, you know, what if she hadn't had the opportunity to take design courses in high school right. and never realized she loved anything but biology? What if she went to college thinking that biology could lead you to medicine and nothing else, or research and medicine? Would she have fallen out of love with biology? Okay, so do you think that maybe just making sure that students like introducing students to just the many, many different possibilities yeah. of, of, uh, of careers and different types of lives yes. to live. That and, I think, and I think in my environmental class, I try really hard to highlight all the different careers that are not necessarily environmentally science-based, but that have pieces. For example, if you love math and design and in the environment, there's green architecture. Mm -hmm. There's landscape design. I mean, our kids don't think about, you know, what goes into designing a landscape. And, you know, outside of our school, they look at the dirt pits. And I'm like, you know, actually, and I heard our headmaster refer to them once as dirt pits or somebody here. And I was like, it's not a dirt pit. It's an ingenious engineering marvel <laughs> that helps to prevent the flooding that we're seeing happen in downtown. Right. And so, you know, that's all landscape architecture. Right. So I think that opening up possibilities. Mm -hmm. And is that, is that part of the general curriculum? If I were to look at the, the general curriculum for school, um, would I find that? Uh, I don't think so, no. Mostly because, you know, especially when you look at public education, it's not something that can be easily tested on a standardized test. Mm -hmm. And we can't use it to measure whether or not we've achieved some kind of, you know, the, the job of a standardized test is to make sure that we've achieved certain skills or content-based knowledge. When are we ever saying that one of those things is making sure that kids are exposed to a bunch of different careers? Right. Unfortunately, 
we steer away from practices that cannot be tested. And 100%. There's a lot of valuable knowledge and skills that can be assessed, but that cannot be tested. And maybe we'll be able to come up with some ways to, to do that. I don't know. I mean, look at my biology class. I teach in biology that, you know, the rough endoplasmic reticulum's job is to aid in the production of, you know, proteins. And they're able to transport and modify the proteins after they come off of the ribosomes. How many students are actually, even the ones who love biology, who pursue biology in college, how many of them three years later remember that knowledge? Very few. What they remember is that they took from my class a love for biology. I feel like I found a path I like. And, you know, I really think that you can distill everything we do as a high school teacher, or as a teacher in general, down to whether or not you've ignited the love of learning in a specific subject or not. That's it. End of day. Because Absolutely. when they go to the next level, sure, some of them will remember those things, but I know as a biology major in college, I, my first level biology class was a repeat. So our, our ultimate transfer goal is to instill a love of learning in all of our students. Yep. And if you can instill that love of learning in your subject that you're passionate about or that you love, great. Then maybe you've helped students find a possible path. Absolutely. And so it kind of ties into, I know you didn't ask, but I'm going to talk about it anyway, okay. what I'm interested in doing with my PhD. Yes. Which is, here we are at the advent of AI. Mm -hmm. and the use of it in schools. And so my concern, my, not my concern, my, my question, my excitement, is what it's going to do to the learning process. So I wanna know, and I, my dissertation is headed towards the idea of how do we measure and understand a student's motivation for learning in a subject when using some type of AI assistance. For me, I know that in the past I've used AI and I'm sitting at home and it's because I want to learn about something and I just right. keep using it as mm -hmm. that like virtual tutorial. As you would the internet, for right. example. And right, and as I do with Wikipedia or whatever the source might be, it's easy digestible information that can provide me a base level understanding or provide me with resources I can use to get a deeper level So if we can help these kids become avid fans of learning, then we have reached our goal as educators. Correct, and we've used AI to help increase that motivation. I Not weigh that. them down with being able to tell me the job of the rough endoplasmic reticulum in a pancreatic beta cell. Oh my gosh, Mike, that just distills it all down. Thank you so much. <laughs> it is always worth a day working out with Mr. P as his students and many of his colleagues call him. Um, I hope we can do this again sometime soon. Absolutely. Love this podcast, Christy. Hope more people listen. All right. Thank you. See you. Bye. Is that good? What do you think? Okay. I, as long as you're good with it, I'm good. <laughs> okay.